0: This is The One Thing Podcast, and I'm your host, Dr. Adam Rindy. The One Thing Podcast brings together leaders in functional and naturopathic medicine to discuss actionable information that may unlock puzzles in the areas of gut health, brain health, metabolism, and longevity. Please note, these episodes do not replace the opinion of your doctor. They are not intended to diagnose or treat any condition. Please discuss this information with your provider and discuss your own unique personal health history before adapting this information. Please subscribe to our episode so that you can stay on top of the most current information in these areas of medicine.
1: Hi everybody, I'm
0: Dr. Adam Reddy, I'm your host of the One Thing Podcast. In this week's episode, I welcome on Dr. Elena Guggenheim. Dr. Guggenheim is an assistant professor of anesthesiology and perioperative medicine at Oregon Health and Science University. She is one of the few naturopathic physicians in the world to hold such a prestigious position at a clinical research institution. Dr. Guggenheim specializes in the care of children and adults with chronic pain and connective tissue disorders. She enjoys working with patients with Ehlers-Danlos syndrome and their associated complex syndromes. In this episode, we discuss the various subtypes of EDS, the non-vascular Ehlers-Danlos syndromes. We go into mast cell release, mast cell disorders associated with EDS, dysautonomia, genetics associated with EDS, and much more. I'm sure you'll find Dr. Guggenheim as delightful as I did. She is intelligent, well-informed, She is intellectually humble and she is quite witty. So without further ado, I welcome you to our next episode. Please make sure to see the links in the show notes and in the comment section below as Dr. Gunheim's um, contact information and course links are in those sections. And if you like what we're doing, please subscribe to our channels and in your podcast players. So without further ado, welcome to the next episode of the One Thing Podcast. Hi, this is Adam Rindy, and I'm here with Dr. Elena Guggenheim, and I welcome you to the One Thing Podcast. Welcome, Dr. Guggenheim. Thank you. It's great to have you here, and um, I'm really excited to speak about Um, today's topic, um, which we're going to go into hypermobility and connective tissue disorders. And this is, you know, a area that you've become very specialized in and and well known for, and you also are teaching a course in. So I would um, love to just kind of jump in to get to know you a little bit better. Um, I think, you know, one of the things um, um, my traditions on this podcast is just to kind of hear some moments that, uh, you know, kind of were life-changing, practice-changing moments for you. And, you know, one of the things, um, if it's okay with you, would be to hear, uh, you know, when was the moment where you you realized that hypermobility and connective tissue um, disorders would be something that you were going to really dive into?
1: Great. I mean, we all, I think we all like hearing origin stories, you know, like, That's a that's a nice shared type of storytelling. Um, I I'll try to be as succinct as possible so that we can move on to the the meteor topics. Oh, did you disappear? I think you might have just disappeared.
0: No, I I'm here. It's just that okay. when you talk, uh, I disappear.
1: <laughs> Great, cool. I'll keep going. Um, so. I had a really interesting job, um, I guess maybe six or seven years ago now, um, where I was working within like a chain of urgent care clinics um, that many people probably know about Zoom care. Um, and they had this moment in time where they were trying to expand and, cre- and create more of a like kind of a hip version of Kaiser. So they kept, they kept all of their urgent care, but they, kept, they put me within a specialty clinic. Um, and I was with a GI doc and a great dermatologist and gynecologist. Um, and for lack of not really exactly knowing what to call what I do, they just kind of called it immunity. And essentially what that meant was like, anything that people couldn't deal with in a 15 minute visit um, or were kind of like repeat coming to urgent care for or or overwhelming the primary care process in that system, like they all just kind of got funneled to me. Um, it was extremely overwhelming and the best learning experience of my life because I suddenly was like the go-to person for what I kind of started to acknowledge as sort of like the orphans of our medical care. Um, Like the patients that people wanted to kind of pass like hot potatoes. Um, And they all kind of ended up with me. Um, And oftentimes it was for that combination, like that combination of like pain, fatigue, gut problems, um, headaches, uh, like kind of the you name it, like the patient with like, the but what I kind of think of as like the pan positive review of systems, like the patients that just had something going on in every category. And, you know, once I did kind of more of a traditional rheumatologic workup or orthopedic workup for their joint pain, and finding myself not finding the answers, um, I really just kind of started looking for what, what is this? Like, I didn't feel comfortable slapping a label like fibromyalgia, um, which is, which is really like a descriptive diagnosis. It's not a, it's not an etiologic diagnosis. It's not telling you why the problem is there. It's just trying to name it and call it something. Um, So within that, um, I started to see a little bit of this hypermobility kind of flavor to a lot of these patients that were being, you know, like, I started to see kind of a biased population. Um, and then one year, I went, um, uh, I I would go to American College of Rheumatology conference every year. Um, and I went to a talk, I, I, I already knew I was sort of interested in hypermobility. And I like thought I knew things. And I was like, I know that they have, you know, mood problems and gut problems, and I'm so smart. Look at me. And I went to a lecture um, at American College of Rheumatology. Um, I will note it was a fairly poorly attended conference. Uh, that particular talk was fairly poorly attended, um, given that there's like 15 or 20,000 rheumatologists from all over the world come and they do like jumbotron and like air airplane air, uh, hangar type lectures. So this was like a small like breakout group. There were probably 30 people there. And basically they started talking and actually kind of bullet pointing out all of the types of problems that we tend to see early in life, midlife, late in life, Um, And really kind of starting to connect the dots. And I, um, I, it was just like lightning going off in my brain thinking about, oh my gosh, well, there was this patient who actually I was like seeing them more for unexplained pelvic pain. And I didn't even think to kind of do a connective tissue evaluation for them. I need to circle back and with so-and-so who maybe had these little pieces in their history that could point towards connective tissue. Um, So I left that lecture feeling like I knew a lot and I was so smart and um, that I, that I was going to like crack the code. (laughs) Um, And I don't know if you've seen those, like those, like learning, learning things, or it's like when you start to get interested in a topic and you're like, oh my God, I'm amazing. And then you're like, oh my God, I know nothing. Um, and that I've been, I've tried to keep myself in this sort of like, I know nothing category as best as I can. I know that's kind of a weird thing to say, but like, um, I tried it, I try to acknowledge that we still have so much to learn on any given day that um like I thank you for calling me an expert but I also say like I don't think any of us are truly experts yet on Ehlers-Danlos and hypermobility spectrum disorders and all the things that go wrong because we're all kind of learning together. The only reason I would consider myself like an expert and I'm not going to call myself that is that it's just like the thing i put all of my all of my um marbles in that bucket like i just read all the papers i can i go to all the conferences that i can um with all of the concurrent things that tend to go wrong with the immune system and the gi system and the autonomic nervous system so um I, I'm, I'm just, I'm going to politely hand you back the term expert. Um, and uh, and I, I think that's probably my origin story. Um, the other thing we were just so briefly chatting about um, before we started was uh, that process that you go through when you learn about something and like suddenly you feel like you're seeing it everywhere. Mm-hmm. um especially like the first few years when when I was still just the person who was getting all the hot potatoes um I really had to like check myself and be like am I just so excited about connective tissue maybe everybody's hypermobile. like I don't know um and I mean at this point it's really different because Ninety-five percent of the patients that I see are seeing to me, seeing me very specifically because of suspected Ehlers-Danlos or related disorder. Um, so now it makes sense to me that it's the only thing I see. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Uh, so fascinating. And I, you know, I think when I was going through school, um, when we were talking about EDS, there wasn't a whole lot to talk about, um, you know, as far as what, how we could help patients because Mm -hmm. there wasn't a lot of deep study about, um, the applications of treatments and what the underlying pathophysiology was more like, make sure that they're, um, sent to a good physical therapist that knows how to prevent injury and help with stability. Mm -hmm. And that was about it. And now that, um, you know, with the work you're doing and, and lots of researchers and um, the whole community that's devoted to this, like, there's just so much more to this to think about. And it's pulling through, pulling together a lot of questions, clinical questions that, you know, we were stumped by. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, you know, it's fascinating. I think I'd love to just jump into just talking about connective tissue and what it is, just, uh, you know, kind of like... the the big view yeah just the big view of like you know we're sitting here we're held together
1: you know Mm -hmm. i'm
0: not i'm not falling down onto the floor why is that
1: (laughs) my organs
0: are aren't falling down or maybe they are i am aging
1: (laughs) well uh drooping organs is actually a thing that can happen to people with eds um so essentially like i'll 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 very um, broadly say like, yeah, connective tissue is the thing that holds us together. Um, And basically there's multiple different categories of connective tissue. You know, we've got bones and muscles and tendons and ligaments. We also have fascia and that's where um, there's actually a, a physiatrist in California who's been researching changes in fascial textures um, in people with EDS. So it's it's not simply like, oh, the tendons and ligaments are just kind of loose and things move more. Um, <clears throat> it's really that milieu of like the webbing between all of those structures um, that is has abnormal textures and organization. And, you know, like, sit down and talk to a functional medicine or a naturopathic doctor for 10 minutes, and every single one of them will acknowledge that, like, our extracellular milieu and our intracellular health, like, really dictate the health of the whole organism, right? So then when you start to put it into the context that that organism is sort of going through the normal assaults of gravity, (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. the normal kind of traumas of, you know, being in a human body, the environmental assaults, um, which I think all of us suffer from. And um, I, I think globally and collectively, our health is suffering from our environmental assaults, but this is a population of people that for some reasons we know and some we don't seem to be particularly impacted by gravity in their environment, um, and I think it does kind of go back to well, like what's existing in that in that extracellular milieu and the and the fascia. It's like your lymph organs, and you know, I I. An expert in this and by any stretch of the imagination, but some of the more successful physical therapists that I think work with this population do a lot of fascial based techniques and things like fascial counterstrain um, and lymph based techniques. And not just viewing this as like, oh, this shoulder's unstable. Let me like give them this exercise to do to stabilize their shoulder. Um, a, that's not engaging. B, that that usually um, doesn't fix the underlying abnormal biomechanics, but it's also not addressing the possible role that a good physical therapist can have in, like, you know, improving overall, you know, overall biochemistry and health through the techniques that they use. I kind of went off a little bit to the left there.
0: With no, that, that's <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's it is. It's also valuable that um, we're mo- we're moving away from a model of just muscles and joints, you know, and, mm-hmm. and looking at the constellation of of connective tissue um, involvement in conditions like EDS, and you know, and it's helping us explain why these you know, why there's bloating and there's other kind of stagnation of fluids and, and Mm -hmm. um, IBS and other conditions that can kind of go go along with it. So
1: one of the things that really what you were just saying just made me think of is um, there's this model that's being developed um, primarily by, sort of like the the European um, EDS researching researcher consortiums. And I just, the the imagery of this is so spot on. And I think it's part of why these conditions have been missed or discredited for so long. Um, and it's called the spider. Um, and I, I wish I could like draw it or like have like a whiteboard to draw it out. So I'm going to like yeah. just, I'm going to pantomime it. Um, but essentially they like create an axis out, like on a pinwheel of the different systems that are impacted by EDS. So we've got like, you know, the musculoskeletal system and GI and the nervous system and skin and GU and the, you know, the genital urinary system. Um, we've got the eyes, we've got the respiratory tract, like, all of these things are made of connective tissue and can be sort of at the brunt of the downstream effects of this so and then they can kind of do like a symptom severity score on each of those pinwheels and you can take five patients and map them out and none of them look the same right like we were taught in school something simple like hypothyroid like they're cold they're constipated, they're overweight, um, they're tired. Um, you know, like we had that constellation and we could recognize it and diagnose it. And it was a relatively homogenous looking patient population. Mm -hmm. This is the most like wildly disparate patient population. And like, doctors don't like that. Like, we like things to look similar and we can kind of line them up and organize them. And like, you kind of have to let your organization, like things are going to look the same brain go. Um, like, I mean, and sometimes I'm really struck with this. For instance, a couple of weeks ago, I saw a new patient. It was a teenage boy and like his mom was kind of dragging him in and he was tired and his back hurt. And like, that was it. Like he didn't have anything else. And I was like, oh, you know, I went through my whole history and I was like, oh God, like, like this, this, these people waited two years to see me. And like, he doesn't need me. He's just a little tired and his back hurts. Like Mm -hmm. it was kind of a remarkably um, normal review of systems for me. And I went to do his physical exam and I was just blown over. Like, he didn't even feel like he had bones. Like, I went to go do his, you know, pinky, and it laid down. It, like, flopped over onto the back of his arm. Mm -hmm. His elbows were at, like, negative 25 degrees of hyperextension. Like, he had this, like, wildly abnormal um, physical exam and, like, really no musculoskeletal symptoms, right? So, Mm -hmm. Um. I think he had sleep apnea. Like I see just a ton of sleep apnea, probably 80, 90% of the patients I work with have sleep apnea Mm -hmm. Um, or upper airway resistance disorder. Like one of, one of those kind of, you know, oxygenating while you're sleeping disorders. Um, No, I can't, I can't predict what life is going to be like for him in his thirties, forties, fifties, eighties. But I've learned that like the degree of what I find on a physical exam um, may not align with what their symptoms actually are. Um, And again, doctors don't like that either. Like some of my most profoundly disabled, impacted patients have like a barely positive sort of stiff, positive Bighton score. Um, Mm -hmm. And the joint instability is, not particularly present. They've never dislocated, they've or subluxed, or you know have a history yeah. of, you know, a bunch of orthopedic surgeries. So I think part of what we need to grow out of is this thinking that any of these patients that we're seeing that they're presenting symptom is going to be musculoskeletal, and that it's going to be primarily joint instability and recurrent sprains and orthopedic surgeries and all of that. um, I think orthopedists are getting better and better at sort of picking up the patients that fall into that heavily weighted musculoskeletal category. Um, But like going back to those aha moments when I like had this chronic pelvic pain patient um, and it actually turned out that the patient had like a pelvic congestion syndrome. Um, which is really common in this population. So that's that's where like, we don't think like, oh, this somebody that's not coming in with a musculoskeletal heavy history, that maybe it's a connective tissue disorder. And that's where I feel like we need to start expanding our consciousness a little bit.
0: Yeah. And I think maybe we'll get into this a little bit more later, but I was just going to remark on how you know, when patients or people who are dealing with like a digestive disorder, um, maybe some allergies, um, some chronic fatigue, and headaches, like you said, and then if if you stop there, you would think, you know, you, it could just take you down this one path without even mm-hmm. discussing connective tissue. But if you ask them the question, you know, how, um, have you ever been told you have, mobile joints and then they'll show you in the office yeah. like, what they can do. Um, but that per, that particular piece has just kind of been brushed aside. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, well, there's nothing you can do about it. So, um, But then when you see that, it, it is just sort of a remarkable way. It kind of pulls the story together.
1: Yeah. You know, so, I, I talk to patients about that too. Like, um, I... When I, when I lecture to the OHSU medical students about EDS, which I do three or four times a year, um, I kind of go through like what I call the EDS myths. Um, and that's like one of the first ones that I address is, since this isn't gonna change anything, why diagnose it for people? Um, and, I could kind of go and sort of dissect about um, how that is an unfortunate manifestation of ableism in medicine that kind of um, is hesitant to fully engage patients with understanding their body. Mm -hmm. Um, because it's kind of easier and faster to label them with functional diagnoses like IBS and fibro. And if you have IBS and fibro and you're going to, you know, take dicyclamine and eat a low FODMAP diet and go to the physical therapist, like why does it make any difference if you pursue this connective tissue diagnosis? Um, one, the my very first reason for arguing that we should is i i can't even express how emotionally validating it is for somebody who has lived their life in this sack of flesh and always just kind of felt like they were different or awkward. And all these things just sort of randomly seemed to go wrong with them. And maybe they blamed themselves or their family thought they were a hypochondriac or trying having attention-seeking behavior. Mm-hmm. And suddenly they're given a context of like, hey... <laughs> Um. this isn't just you being exceptionally unlucky, or um, this isn't, this isn't, the, the responsibility of this doesn't rest solely on your shoulders to carry. There's a context, there's a reason why we've seen, you know, 15 things go wrong by the time you're 20. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes like super, like, they just don't, they don't seem like they're connective tissue. Like, um, I, I don't know, I'm trying to like, think of some good examples. Well, for instance, one thing we see is a major increased risk of strep infections in um, and, and kids, you know, and, and why is that? You know, I don't I don't think we know the answer to it. Um, and with those increase, increase in strep, are we maybe seeing more PANS and PANDAS? Um, that's a big question mark that people haven't really started digging into. Um, but they do kind of tend to like morph into really anxious, um, Mm -hmm. teens with, and then they, you know, can start going down the autonomic dysfunction pathways and the immune dysfunction pathways and the mast cells get roped in to kind of send alarm bells that the world isn't safe. Um are and then their nervous system starts responding to that and they go, go in like these back and forth scream fests at each other. Yeah. Um, and all the while most patients are trying to normalize their experience and force themselves to like perform normally and like look like a healthy, normal, happy person. Um, so when you, when you engage them and you like get help them get a correct diagnosis i mean i can't i just can't even count the number of people that just sort of sit there and i try to just hold space and like give them the place to be emotional like it's a very emotional diagnosis for people the other thing that's really like lovely as a provider with working with these patients is that they're not working with me that there's some expectation that I'm going to cure them of a genetic disorder. You know, that I'm going to, um, wave, wave a wand. And like suddenly this familial thing that we can actually trace back generations and, um, what really drives it. We can talk about a little bit, you know, what's happening on the genetic level. We can talk a little bit more about, but, um, you know, that's a, a very emotional and validating process for people to understand their bodies. The other thing I always bring up in that sort of question of like, do we pursue this and diagnose it is it really helps put a context to other diagnoses that maybe would never be pursued or thought of without the context of abnormal connective tissue. Um, And like specifically when you and I were talking about the course that I've done on this, um, you know, there's some really complex issues that luckily I think happen to a, a small percent, but a meaningful percent of patients that develop upper cervical instability. Um, like the craniocervical instability, atlantoaxial instability, Chiari, um, or having spontaneous spinal CSF leaks and, you know, essentially getting labeled as like a new daily persistent headache. And, you know, I've had those patients that have been trialed on 30 different headache medications and it turns out there was a hole in their dura and, you know, without the context of connective tissue, you wouldn't really put something like a spontaneous dural leak on your DDX of a chronic headache, you know? Right. Um, So I think those are, that's luckily a much smaller percent of the patients um, that get those really profound neurological complications, but without the context of their connective tissue, you know, you're not, your brain isn't going to go there as part of the evaluation and workup for them.
0: Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I think the other thing just to add on to that um, is the concept of someone with hypermobility, their pain and their, the way their pain manifests or their way um, their pain needs to be managed is quite different than sort of what they'll typically hear from a family member is, you know, and I've, I've had patients break down in tears from how many people have told them, well, you just need to stretch more or, you know.
1: Have you tried <laughs> yoga?
0: Right, right, right. It's like that, to, to have someone understand that why that doesn't, why that's not the best recommendation for someone yeah. with hypermobility um is empowering. So I'm I really applaud you for, you know, how you're taking that and, you know, empowering patients to understand what's going on with their body versus, you know, sort of just given this label and told to do these two or three things, or even worse, just given like a, a pamphlet. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes that happens. It's just, you know, like education and you know, Come back and see me in a year or so yeah. but um it's it's uh it's 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 very empowering to understand how the body works and to have a diagnosis that or an, a, an assessment that explains the milieu of problems but and i really like how you point out that how you know when you look at the constellation of things that can happen in connective tissue disorders that it does those things don't manifest for every single patient like we opened with Discussing how some some patients do actually have really hyperelastic skin um, who have connective tissues, but others will not manifest with that.
1: Yeah, the skin piece is important. So for anybody, I mean, patients or providers listening to this, like the diagnostic criteria changed a lot in two thousand seventeen, um, and the new criteria while it's really cumbersome and it takes a little practice to as a provider to feel really comfortable going through it um the there's a portion of it where you kind of go through a list of 12 generalized signs and symptoms of a connective tissue disorder so things other than joints being bendy um which unfortunately we primarily rely on the Bighton score, which I think is a pretty limited score. And I, I'm happy to elaborate that on if you want, but um, t- only two of the things on that list, like what one is soft, soft skin and the other is stretchy skin. Um, so you really don't have to have soft or stretchy skin. There's plenty of other t- 10 more things on the list of, Um, things that we look for, um, more specifically for the hypermobile EDS diagnosis. Now, if I like look at somebody and I look at their skin and I look at their scars and um, it's much more um, profound and they've got really kind of involuted, shiny, wrinkly scars, we start to think about some of the other genetic subtypes, um, like classical, which has really really atrophic, shiny, dented scars. Um, and, you know, there's there's 14 different subtypes of EDS. Like we kind of even, even we're, we're guilty of the same thing of like trying to just put something in a category, right? There's 14 different subtypes, most of which are quite rare, but um, they're impacting either different types of collagen um, or uh proteins or things that help organize collagen um, and they tend to have kind of their unique signature of what you know what shows up clinically in the patient um, but I don't even want to just oversimplify things and call everything EDS without like taking that moment to just say like oh there's actually 14 types um, and I've I've worked with patients with um many of the types but definitely not all um there's Mm -hmm. there are subtypes i'm sure even i mean i've probably worked with three or four thousand hypermobile patients at this point um there's still many subtypes i have not seen so um many of them are quite rare i think maybe you just froze are you coming back adam it looks like I'm still alive. Maybe this is the portion of the podcast where I put on like a song and a dance. (laughs) I'm not sure what happened. I'm not sure if you're coming back, Adam. All
0: right, we're still live. <laughs> I don't know what happened, but um, I was
1: just—I was sending you a quick text mess, a panic text message.
0: This is. <laughs> This is the live, this is what, you know, kind of the live environment. I think I got yeah. kicked off. But yeah, well, we can just kind of continue. So um, you were saying, we were talking about the 14 subtypes. Um, and you were saying that, you know, you had, when I got dropped off, you were saying that you had seen all of them, but almost, you know, most of them.
1: I, don't, I wouldn't know. I don't even know if I'm going to say most of them. I've seen... uh I mean, it. Ninety-five percent is the in my in my practice is the hypermobile subtype, um, and mm-hmm. then I have some classical like um, classical, one with the keratoconus, the brittle cornea subtype, um, and one with ar- arthroacalasia subtype. Um, And that was in somebody who had been born with their hips congenitally dislocated. So usually those rarer subtypes, there's something very dramatic that has shown up younger than like with, with the hypermobile type. One of the questions I get a lot from patients, a lot from other providers is around the vascular subtype because that's kind of the scary one. Um, and by scary, I mean, the one that can kill you at a young age. Um, honestly, I think, you know, going through life with a, with a poorly diagnosed disorder that can be profoundly disabling is also very scary. So I'm not in any way trying to diminish, um, the hypermobile type, um, but the vascular subtype can cause like spontaneous organ rupture, vessel rupture like uterine rupture and childbirth or colon ruptures. Um, and it's one that patients get worried about a lot, especially patients that have a lot of varicosities or get really easily broken blood vessels in their extremities mm. or lots of, you know, like really like they, they know that they bruise really easily and their vessels are really delicate. Um, and because of that, they get really... You know, understandably worried that they might have the vascular subtype. Um, but almost always, and I'm not, I just never use the always and never, I never use the word always. Um, <laughs> I should eat my own words. But um, <laughs> almost always, there is a strong family history of organ and vessel rupture prior to the age of 40. So, you know, I often rely heavily on that family history piece, um, or, you know, that their mom successfully had them and had they have siblings and like, you know, they, um, so it's, it's rare, very, I've never actually, again, with my, I don't know, three to 4,000 hypermobile patients, I don't have any with the vascular subtype. Um, and I think it is very rare and it's, it's important to know when to screen for it, but it's also important to give people a lot of reassurance that like blood vessels get dilated and broken really easily in a lot mm. of these subtypes. So <clears throat> that that piece I wanted to wanted to make sure and touch on in case you have listeners that are like tick, 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 and then they read about the vascular type and they, you know ha- have that um, understandable worry
0: yeah um, that, that's you know i i think that it's bringing to mind a couple of experiences i've had with patients and with family members that you know have had vascular issues serious ones like that and that's just such a hard road um mm-hmm. and i'm glad you pointed that out and how you know it probably takes a very detailed diagnostic test to to really come up with confirming that diagnosis
1: Yeah. So that, that diagnosis is confirmed with genetic testing. um, And there's multiple different good panels out there that do genetic testing for um, EDS and, and other kind of hypermobile connective tissue disorders. Mm -hmm. Um, And I don't know if we want to, like, I don't know that that's the best place for for us to put our time, but there is easily available panels that can test for the different subtypes. Um, yeah, that are rel- relatively affordable and usually well covered by commercial insurance. Mm, that's great.
0: Yeah, maybe we could get into that a little later. I I don't want to leave this this part of the segment without um, one of my favorite things to do is when um, thinking about like pathophysiology is sort of my one of my favorite parts of being a provider, healthcare provider. Mm-hmm. Um, and we had this physiology teacher at Bastyr University. Um, when I was going through, he's now retired. His name's Dr. Modell and uh, Harold Modell. And he he came over to Bastyr from UW and he had like classic training, you know, in physiology. And he used to teach us to kind of travel into the body and look around and describe what we're what we're seeing, and yeah. I thought it'd be interesting with like, just like a kind of a template um, connective tissue disordered patient. You know, of course, there's all these different subtypes. Like, if we were to travel in and like say we're like in a forest of connective tissue, and a patient who doesn't have EDS and one who does, what would be the what would be the landscape? Look at what we would be mm-hmm. seeing that we wouldn't see. You
1: know, I whatever. love this exercise. I'm I'm a very like visual sort of analogy driven person so this um this visualization exercise really jives with me um i'm gonna take it one step further and incorporate um a show that i watched with my now teens uh when they were little the magic school bus oh yeah you know, they like got on the magic school bus and they like went down the digestive track. So I think right. I'm going to I'm going to start this visualization adventure like from the gut, because that makes the most sense to me. OK,
0: um, now that that theme song is playing in my head.
1: <laughs> I see you got magics. to watch it, too. Huh?
0: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah.
1: <laughs> um, so. Uh, be. Because this is literally the, the clay that the whole body has been made out of. Like, basically, I don't think you would land anywhere and necessarily see the terrain looking the same. Um, so, you know, like going down the little magic school bus, like first thing that we may see different in, um, you know, the esophagus even is that like, the, the, the muscles and the contraction waves just like 80% of patients have dysphagia, right? So like even from the very beginning of like taking things into the body, you're seeing this sort of like flaccid, like swallowing that that's disorganized and um probably a little like like inflammation in the walls from A lot of GERD coming up so like it's kind of these like red billowy (laughs) billowy esophagus um you know and if you were to take a step deeper into the tissue you may see different types of immune cells starting to activate like you're maybe seeing some eosinophils and some eosinophilic esophagitis or you may start seeing mast cells showing up like they're ready to fight against the outside world that like already in the throat is already like gone awry. Then you kind of make your way down to the stomach. You maybe get stuck in a little hiatal hernia and kind of have to like wedge your way down. And like now the magic school bus is like, oh, I finally made it to the stomach. I got stuck in the esophagus and had to wind my way through this hiatal hernia. And now I'm kind of sloshing around in here and... There's a bunch of tears in the walls. Like we see like non H pylori, um, ulcers, um, especially in patients with mast cell activation, like their can, their tissues are, are friable and ulcerated. Um, I forgot they probably have, you know, some bleeding inflamed gums and some ulcers in the mouth before that poor magic school bus even like got to the esophagus. Mm-hmm. Um, I could go on like a whole like region by region but I do want to get us like from the GI track um which is probably this weird like almost haunted um uh like I always kind of think of the GI track as sort of a like a conveyor belt um factory where like things happen in each section of the factory and then it like gets put on the conveyor belt and it goes but like because of the autonomic nervous system stuff that often happens which I got to get us out of the GI tract so we can start looking at the nerves um like the conveyor belts in the GI tract are like like either somebody just turned the switch off and it's like it's just sitting there in a region, like the stomach with gastroparesis or the small bowel, and then you start developing SIBO, right? So like the conveyor belt is not just this nice peristaltic thing. It's like, it's on speed. You get like, I have patients that vacillate between gastric dumping and gastroparesis, you know, I'm like, no, um, like no real great rhyme or reason of like why the stomach decided today is a frozen day and tomorrow is going to be a dump day Um, so already just sort of like the the mechanics of peristalsis have gone off and then like the the whole biome of the ecosystem living in the gut you know it's not its fault that you know it's getting undigested food or food sitting there for long periods of time and low pancreatic output. So the stuff isn't digesting very well. Like they're just opportunistic and they, they're going to eat their available food source. Then when we take a step from like the, now like the magic school bus is going to get like shuttle. Well, they probably have leaky gut, so they don't even need to get shuttled. Mm. They can just like,
0: it's just drive right through yeah.
1: Just drive right through and now you're yeah. in. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so and, and there and there you are. Now you're now you have met you know no no fancy um shuttling needed. It's just like pow, now you're in. Now what you're really being met with is like the actual machinery of the nervous system having like, the autonomic nervous system in particular, um, which really about, as far as we know, maybe 60, 70% of people with hypermobility have autonomic dysfunction. Um, And the way I describe this to patients is like, this is the part of your nervous system that we all just take for granted as our hard drive. You know, it's, it's controlling our GI motility and our, all our smooth muscle, our bladder motility, our GI motility, our heart rate, our blood pressure, our temperature, tears, saliva, our pupils, our sweating, um, you know, all of those kind of background hardware things that somebody without autonomic dysfunction just like takes for granted that those things Mm -hmm. are working. Um, Mm -hmm. And you're starting, as soon as you fly through that leaky gut, like you're already starting to see um, nerves that are, you know, potentially um, releasing more norepinephrine in the gut, less acetylcholine. You're starting to see more mast cells that like, you know, Maybe our magic school bus just drove like a little too close by the mast cell and it was like, pow, I'm going to attack it and kill it because that is definitely an invader, right? And then you start getting that neuroimmune interface where the chemicals being released from the mast cell are starting to piss off the nerves, right? Because we are releasing mast cell mediators that are kind of like directly either like on nociceptive, um, nociceptors, right? And then you're starting to get abdominal pain. Um, And then here's where things get really messy when the mast cells get involved. And then this is on like the, um, I would put this into like the cutting edge of our trying to understand the pathophysiology of HEDS. Um, mass cells within their little granules, like we used to think they had two or 300 chemicals in there. It's actually closer to 1200. And they include whole categories of collagenases, elastases, essentially like connective tissue digesting enzymes in the mast cells. And you've got mast cells everywhere. You've got them in your gut, your respiratory tract. They're in the synovium. They're inside a joint. They're embedded within muscles. They're, um, they're such an interesting white blood cell that we just, we brushed over them so quickly in medical school. It was like, let's talk all about neutrophils forever, but because there's only one thing that goes wrong with mast cells and it's mastocytosis and it's extremely rare. We're just, you, you just like mark on your exam, mast cells, rare, triptase, done. <laughs> right. right. Um, like, and that was it. I was like, maybe we didn't even get that much. I'm not even sure. Um, I should remember. Cause I did teach hematology, but that was like a decade ago. <laughs>
0: Yeah, <laughs>
1: I probably would be it was more than a decade ago. I'd probably be ashamed, ashamed of my um, discrimination against the mast cell at this point. Yeah. Um, but the the mast cell piece, of, I mean, what makes them so interesting is white blood cells is that <clears throat> all our other white blood cells are circulating, you know, they like they're released from the bone marrow pretty mature and they're circulating around and they like listen for the siren song of places they need to go but mast cells are really different they're released from the bone marrow naive and they travel to their final destination they like get married really young and they're, they're like i'm a young little mast cell and i'm going to i'm going to make myself I'm going to go to the lungs, and that's where I'm going to live forever. So they go out and they embed themselves in their tissue and then they mature there. So, you know, our mass the mast cell triggers, content of the granules, behavior, etc., is different in the lungs than it is in the gut, than it is in the you know, adjacent to nerves than it is in the bladder. Like those are distinct populations of white blood cell that have like grown up in really different environments. Um, and because of that, like, you know, sometimes people get primarily symptoms in their GI tract and they don't have a ton of skin symptoms. It's the same thing with that, like spider of the connective tissue mm-hmm. thing. like. Not all patients with mast cell issues have hives. Um, you know, depending on how the mast cells in their skin have evolved, maybe they do. Um, but maybe it's primarily like GI and bladder symptoms that are that we're seeing as sort of the manifestation of of mast cells activating inappropriately. Um, I think I just took things a little like I went I might the magic school bus like was so upset. Sorry, I, we have a
0: GPS on this bus.
1: Great, yeah, right, great. Right. The G was like
0: it's it's doing a little like Google Maps u U-turn yeah. a little bit. But.
1: You know, and if and if if we're gonna like park the bus next to a joint, like adjacent to a joint, <clears throat> um, because I don't I don't wanna um I don't wanna give more airtime to like one problem over another. Um you know, what you're going to be seeing is, like, when you look at a ligament or a tendon, we've embedded in those connective tissues little proprioceptors that tell our brain where we are. So like, in essence, the way that our brain knows where our body is, is by hitting the stretch. So when you straighten a limb and you stretch those um, uh, tendons and ligaments, that's going to fire those little sentinels and then tell your brain where you are. So somebody with a lot of joint hypermobility, um, like essentially their brain isn't going to really know where they are unless they're moving outside of like a normal healthy range of motion which once they start moving outside of that, they are putting more mechanical stresses on that joint, which is why we tend to see like early and more severe um, osteoarthritis, degenerative disc, degenerate, you know, degenerative arthritis all over the place. And then you sort of think like, oh, the way that person navigated their body, their way their brain navigated their body was Essentially, to be having abnormal biomechanics a lot of the time in ways that like really kind of pounded on those joints. Um, then you start adding in mast cells. We've we do have research on mast cells um, being overactive in osteoarthritic joints, right? So if you combine the the abnormal immune function within a joint with more mast cells potentially and then you add on the poor biomechanics, you know, it's no wonder that I have patients who are like 21 and you get an X-ray of their neck and they're like, oh my God, your neck looks like a 60 year old. Oh, well, who knows why, let's move on.
0: Yeah.
1: (laughs) Go to physical therapy, you know, and and they're like, why would my neck look like a 60 year old in my twenties? I don't, I don't understand that. But then it's like, oh, you're thinking too much, just like, be a good patient cog in the wheels and like, let's move this, let's move this along. Right.
0: Right. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That is so fascinating to, to have done that exercise because it's, um, you know, it it really, for me pulls together just how this is coordinated and all the things that need to be think about, thought about to, to, potentially manage or help balance this uh you know the issues that are going on in these different organ systems um what do you what are you seeing these days as sort of emerging comprehensive approaches to eds and what what what's kind of on the forefront
1: i mean i've seen
0: I've seen things like you know more integrative clinics and integrative services starting to pop up is is that what you're you're seeing uh
1: maybe um well first i do have to say that um there is a group at the medical university of south carolina um that is uh Actually, thinks that they're like circling the gene for HEDS, and they've been pretty um, quiet about it. I've been in email correspondence with their um, with the PI, um, but they what they've kind of hinted at is that what they're focusing on from the genetic perspective would actually help with the context of. Why some of the comorbidities like autonomic dysfunction and mast cell activation, in particular, like why that trifecta maybe comes together, like the POTS, MCAS, EDS trifecta. Um, I think, like to answer your other, the the other more nuts and bolts question in terms of. Like here's here's what I here's my fan this is fantasy but if you don't say fantasy out loud it doesn't happen. So okay. far so far n- nowhere is really doing this yet. But what I see as a truly like multidisciplinary EDS clinic what it would entail would be um a functional medicine doctor or an N.D., one, one of those two things, somebody who can actually look at and hold all the chaos at once, right? Like you, you have to have somebody who's that global chaos linking thinker on the team. Um, and I think any any team that you try to put together that's missing that is, is doomed for failure. Um, and then would include within it physical therapist, occupational therapists, um, somebody who's really great with health psychology, um, you know, that has really kick butt trauma training um, that like can really actually work with trauma patients rather than like blaming their symptoms on trauma. Um, because I think so many of these patients have been falsely labeled with a psychosomatic disorder. Like, um, so, Somebody who can acknowledge and work with the psychological piece of it without using it as the scapegoat. Um, and mm-hmm. it would have like GI and ortho and a physiatrist and, you know, a, a pain doc and, you know, an autonomic neurologist. And, you know, like it would have the people who really excelled at their, like, their siloed system but being held within the context of like the global chaos thinker. Um, So it's that's just, I think it's one of the reasons that this patient population is so orphaned is that we have chopped medicine up into so many little disparate separate pieces um, that these patients that need that kind of coordination because the driver is the same for all those places, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, but you don't go to your neurologist and expect them to give you a medication for your dysmotility in your GI tract, right? Even though like technically like gastroparesis is more of a neurologic disorder than it is a GI disorder, but we don't, that's just not how we do it, you know? And, and yeah, I mean, and We would include nutrition and acupuncture, and like it would be like a whole thing. It would be amazing.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. (laughs) How many extremely wealthy listeners on the podcast? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I could totally make this happen, and then we could put one in every state. Um, Because I I haven't been able to take a new patient in two years. Um, I'm working on a referral queue of patients more than 500 people long. Um, and that's, that's having not taken a a new referral since October of 2018, 19. Wow. I'm, time is weird. So like, please guys, please do this. Like if you, um, I mean, that's just like my shout out for the medical community to like organize and create real systems of, of care and support for this population. Yeah. Because the need is there and it's only getting bigger now that we've got long haul COVID patients with POTS and MCAS, you know, now we have a whole new population. And I am guessing, I suspect that people with hypermobility who get COVID are gonna be more likely to get long haul. We know that's the case with things like EBV and like EBV setting off their POTS and MCAS. Um, mm-hmm. So like again, like the need is only increasing exponentially. I have to let my right. dog out, hold on. Okay. <laughs> she's, been, she's been um letting me know that she needs out of my workroom.
0: Okay, gotcha. <laughs>
1: Okay, I'm back.
0: All right. (laughs) Yeah. So, you know, I think in in most you know most naturopathic physicians and functional functional medicine doctors that are working with um, EDS populations, to probably have assembled a team of these different parts, you know, within their respective community. I know, like I have in this area, just it's taken some work, but you know, to know who to turn to for the different components of care, but um to have it or in a in a home, like in yeah. a center would be so fat so so wonderful. Um so what personally are you currently working on that you'd like to tell us about like individual research or classes or what have you?
1: Yeah. Um well, two things from a, for, I'll talk about my research interest first. Um, and one of the things that's in development is, um, I really want to understand the possible role of trauma, trauma history for this patient population. Um, I think I see a lot of complex trauma I see a lot of medical trauma, which honestly needs its own ICD-10 code. Um, And in particular, I would like to ask the question, if patients with higher ACE scores, like the adverse childhood event scores, because we know that ACEs um, have a dramatic impact on the neurological development and immune development. I would like to understand if that has an impact later in life on impacting disease severity for particularly autonomic dysfunction and mast cell stuff. So I'm working with a couple other providers um, at OHSU um, and and that's kind of in development. Um, And, you know, basically, I'm going to look at disease activity markers for POTS and um, look at trauma history. And then we haven't exactly figured out how to incorporate this piece of it. But um, the other provider and I have also really noted a lot of um, that kind of is a different side of that trauma history. We have a lot of patients that are transgender. Um, and wondering if there's some correlation there and how that may play into it um, you know which is another form of complex trauma of like living in a body that's not that's not right um, and in a society that it marginalizes you a lot like that's a that's a form of trauma so we're kind of trying to piece together how to bring the trans medicine piece into it and um, and so that's kind of my, one of, one of my research interests. I have a few others. Um, mm-hmm. I'm also just like massively bogged down in patient care. Um, and then other things that I'm working on. So like my, my mom and I, she's a, a conventionally trained rheumatologist who also has done IFM. Um, so there's there's only a small handful of IFM rheumatologists in the country, so she's pretty unique with that. We've done a 14-hour course um, that basically takes each of these pieces and expands on on each of them. So it's 14 hours. We could have made it 30, Um, and we're thinking about actually doing another another one in the fall, that is more of a a dive into some things we didn't get to cover. Um, We didn't really get to cover like female health and we didn't really get to cover pain management. Like so we have we have more bigger and projects that we want to be able to do to like talk about the nuts and bolts of pain management, I think is a really important conversation Um, because contrary to popular belief, my feeling is that this is actually a population that, um, actually has pretty high pain thresholds. Um, you know, I, I, I think this idea of saying that they're like a princess and the pea and they like feel pain more now they might, if they have small fiber neuropathy, right. Which, um, I, you know, a, a good number do. Um, but you know, outside of, something like CRPS or, you know, I see a lot of CRPS as well in this population or small fiber neuropathy. I actually think their pain threshold is quite high. And like, by the time they're talking about it, like, I sometimes like just wonder like what, what that experience would be like if you were like, if I could unzip myself and then like zip myself into the experience of somebody's body who has this. And I, I'm quite quite confident that the experience of that would like crush me in a day, you know, like mm-hmm. of 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 really how profoundly impactful that that could be. So I want to be able to talk more about pain. That's going to be a fall course that I do with my mom. Um, but our our fourteen hour course is like really it's a it's a deep. Uh, a deep course we've had all sorts of providers take it um mds do's nds pts ots uh acupuncturists um i'm thinking some nurse practitioners some pas like we've had a a good smattering of people um engage with the content really well so um i will kind of like if if anybody's interested in it like we can make sure that we share my contact information or something like that.
0: Yeah. I'll, I'll Um, put a link up with all the show notes. um, Great. To the course.
1: I, I did want to just, there was something important on the tip of my tongue. um, That now has completely flown out of my brain. So, um, Oh, I knew what I was going to say. One of the, um, I think really valid criticisms of our course um, is that it's, it does have a lot of focus on pharmaceutical management. Um, and, and we do talk about kind of more integrative or nutritional or supplemental supportive things. Um, but I don't want people to feel like I'm like saying that this is a course on like purely Like naturopathic only management, Um, it definitely incorporates pharmacology. So I just don't want Mm. anybody to be shocked (laughs) (laughs) when I have, yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Of course, yeah. So that's that's great. I mean, for me, it's really important for us to know all the tools that we have um, for people. There's a place for everything. So, Um, well. Can you leave us with just some parting words before we wrap up here? Um, Some things that you want us to kind of remember or reinforce.
1: Um, I think the thing that like the parting thought that I would just like bring awareness to when people are starting to get interested in this population and like starting to go down the rabbit hole um one is to continue to to cultivate that beginner's mind about it um that we don't really understand everything yet and nor should we like you know a hundred years from now we're gonna look back on ourselves you know and hopefully, um, you know, acknowledge our major shortcomings and understanding a human organism. Like we are not done. We haven't reached a destination of like our scientific or emotional, spiritual understanding of a human organism. So I just, I think that's kind of my parting thought is to just like maintain the beginner's mind and keep learning. And, and if this is a population that like appeals to you to work with, you'll just like never, ever be bored. It's amazing. It's amazing. The patients are amazing. They're so, I kind of hate this word and my kids do too, resilient. Um, And, you know, like it. it it's just, it's just a really phenomenal patient population. And I think what they have taught me is that they really appreciate it when somebody's not working with them under the assumption that they've like figured them out and they know everything that's going on. Um, because patients know that's not true. Um, and I think it's all a big farce when we pretend that we do, which erodes trust. So. Right. We'll, just, we'll just continue yep. to acknowledge the things we don't know
0: I think that's that's really wise and um yeah definitely experienced when when the practitioners stay open and look le- and are learning with their patients alongside them it can be really profound yeah um,
1: and from and, each uh, other you know like we, we yeah. have so much to learn from each other and um that's been actually one of the best things about teaching these classes is that I we like try to make a lot of lively participation when we do live things and I've learned incredible things from people outside of my profession within my profession um we've had a few medical students come through and do it and I like learn things from them it's great it's like this opportunity for like mutual symbiosis of information. And it's, it's great.
0: Love it. Yeah. Well, I look forward to taking your course. Um, and I'm, this was a really fascinating conversation. I felt like you really took us, you know, down the path of, um, understanding, you know, kind of the, the tangible tactical um, aspects of dealing with connected tissue stores and eds so thank you so much yeah, for, for your generosity yeah and uh, i'll uh you know make sure to put all the links up to um your course and other things that um may be informational related to the this podcast so sounds um, great thanks so much for your
1: time yeah absolutely bye
0: Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's episode of the One Thing Podcast. Please share these episodes with your friends, loved ones, colleagues, patients, healthcare providers, anyone who you feel might benefit from hearing these informative interviews. We tend to learn best from people sharing things with us. That's often the first time it's introduced. So don't hesitate if these the content of these episodes reminded you of someone that might benefit from it. For the the episode to them. And I'm sure they'll either appreciate it or be appreciative that you've thought of them. So once again, we'll look forward to seeing you next episode on the One Thing Podcast. And again, much appreciation for you being here with me.